1: to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm Craig Savella, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gabrielle Rosenfeld about his excellent new book, The Fourth Reich, The Spectre of Nazism, from World War II to the present. Dr. Rosenfeld, hello and welcome to the show.
2: Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: It's a pleasure to have you. Um, We like to begin every one of our shows by asking the author to tell us a little bit about himself.
2: Sure. So I'm a professor of history at Fairfield University uh, out here in Connecticut. Um, I've been here since about the year 2000, uh, so going on two decades. Um, And i been focusing most of my writing and research and teaching over the years on uh, the history of 20th century Germany, uh, especially the Nazi period, the post-war period, and the period of the Holocaust. Uh, But especially from uh, a cultural perspective, um, I've looked a lot at the uh, memory of the Nazi period and the Holocaust and post-war West German culture, especially in the areas of uh, architecture and monuments. Uh, And most recently, actually for the better part of 15 years now, I've been dealing with a lot of Research projects on the topic of counterfactual history and alternate history, um, looking at how the ways in which we imagine history might have uh, taken place differently and how those uh, visions, fantasies, or nightmares reflect on how we actually understand history to have happened. Uh,
0: so, that interest in counterfactual uh, has led you to this current book. Um, so, if you could explain to our listeners. Um, how you came up with the idea to write this book um, and why you thought it was the right time
2: to write this Sure. Book. So um, anyone who's a history of Nazi Germany uh, is more than familiar with the concept of the Third Reich. Uh, and of course, most people over the years have come to understand what the First and Second Reichs were as well. Uh, and without getting into all the details of what separates one from the other, uh, I started to notice already some years back, over a decade ago, Um, that there were references uh, every so often uh, to the concept of a Fourth Reich. And initially, I wasn't sure what that was supposed to refer to. But over the last, uh, I would say, five years, I started to realize um, and recognize that there were increasing uh, expressions of uh, anxiety about a potential Fourth Reich starting to circulate in the mass media. So whether it was um, protesters in Greece um, who were condemning Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany, as potentially subjugating Greece to such an extent that the Germans were once more trying to uh, foster a a fourth Reich and wield uh, power malevolently in Europe, or whether it was after Donald Trump's election in 2016, how some left-wing pundits were accusing him of introducing a fourth Reich into America. Um, By this point in time, I was well aware of the fact that it was a signifier, a slogan, uh, an admonitory concept that um, needed to be looked into a little bit more in detail. And, you know, I'd say over the last five, six, seven years, I began researching the actual history of the concept. Uh, and, of course, because um, keyword searches in our era of the internet are far easier than they used to be um, through a variety of newspaper databases, you know, Google Books and so forth, I was able to, you know, write a very thorough history of the um, concept of a forthright, how it changed over time. Uh, and the book essentially looks at um, really what's a very surprising history of the idea of a forthright, tracing it back. Um, not only to the Bible, uh, but in its more modern incarnation, um, the 1930s uh, and 1940s, where, as we'll probably talk about, um, the Fourth Reich has fairly unusual origins and then it, of course, morphs and metastasizes over time to mean any number of things, uh, including a Nazi return to power, but not exclusively a Nazi return to power.
0: Can you talk to us about the sort of the beginnings of your book? Um, why has this been a topic that has been neglected?
2: Right, so it's an interesting question. Um, I would say since the 1940s and the immediate aftermath of World War II, but especially since the 1970s, when pop culture got a hold of the Nazis and never really let them go, uh, which raises of course all kinds of present day uh, parallels to the amazing proliferation of Nazis on streaming series like Hunters or The Plot Against America or The Man in the High Castle, which maybe we'll talk about later. Ever since the uh, post-war period, the idea of a Nazi return to power has been uh, you know, fodder for pulp fiction novels and uh, Hollywood films and so forth. And a lot of times, the uh, concept of a Fourth Reich gets treated very sensationalistically um, to the point where it's not really treated as a serious concept by professional historians, academics, other scholars, and journalists. And one of the things I you know, noted quite early on is that when the concept of a Fourth Reich is ever invoked, half the time... Uh, it's sort of pejoratively uh, as a concept that no one should really bother to take seriously, because we all know, of course, that there was never a chance in hell that the Nazis were ever going to return to power. Uh, And for most of the post-war period, of course, that was a very optimistic, upbeat uh, belief. It was the consensus, frankly, of most people. And uh, I wanted to kind of question that belief, and especially in light of present-day right-wing trends, ask whether we've been a little bit too complacent, perhaps, in dismissing the concept of a Fourth Reich. And I wanted to revisit certain moments in history, uh, especially the history of post-war Germany, but beyond Germany as well, to look at when and where certain uh, far right-wing extremists or outright Nazis wanted to return to power, tried to return to power, and used the concept of a Fourth Reich as an inspirational uh, motif, Um, which of course brings us into the whole question of how it's become a political football, um, because just as many people have used it as a term to dismiss their opponents, as have embraced it as a, you know, term of aspiration. Um, so the Fourth Reich, the more you start looking for it, it's it's everywhere. Uh, and because it's not been a, a stationary uh, signifier and has been really uh, evolving dramatically over time since the 1930s up to the present day, uh, I thought it was a good way to kind of thematize what is arguably a big concern of a lot of people these days, which is the increasing right-wing uh, shift of Western nations away from liberal democracy towards, you know, other forms of, what we might call neo-fascism or right-wing populism.
0: Yeah, no, I, w- I want to thank you for explaining that up front, because I think a question a lot of the listeners would have is, how, how can he write a history about something that has, <laughs> hasn't happened? Um, mm-hmm. But I think, I think you eloquently have told us just why this is an important concept. So, yeah, that's just an object.
2: I, sure. I guess what I'm trying to do in this book is, is write the history of something that never happened, to be sure, but it's the history of a fear. Uh, and a variety of scholars have written about uh, the role of fear in, in political culture and so forth. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Corey Robin's book on fear. On, you know, that's the kind of concept that you can trace, you know, since the French Revolution or since the fears of the McCarthyite period. Uh, but human beings obviously are driven by emotions just as much as real events. And if the emotions are about ghosts or phantasms or whatever, that, that can still be, you know, a very uh, highly motivating um, factor. So, yeah, it's, it's the history of uh, something that never came to pass, but could have. And that's where the counterfactual analysis actually comes in. But we'll talk about that down the line, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so,
0: yeah, let's start at the very beginning. Uh, what are the origins? You, you sort of hinted at it in your introduction that the origins of the Fourth Reich began in the Third Reich. But if you could explain that to us a little bit.
2: Right. I mean, I'll leave it maybe to readers to check out the book and look at the um, theological underpinnings of both the concept of a Third Reich which dates back to the Middle Ages, and the concept of a fourth Reich, which dates back to the the book of Daniel in the Hebrew Bible, Um, without getting into all the details of how there were theological components to the idea of a future uh, realm, or heaven on earth, or a kind of um, divine salvation uh, moment in history, um, I think for the purposes of what we're talking about right now, uh, the concept of a fourth Reich really dates back to the 1930s, when ironically enough, despite the fact that today the fourth Reich is the synonym for a Nazi return to power, it was actually the opponents of the Nazis who employed the concept of a fourth Reich to kind of galvanize their opposition to what of course then was the dominant Reich on the scene, that was the Third Reich. Uh, So for example, there were members of the Social Democratic Party uh, in exile, like Georg Bernhard, who I talk about uh, early on in the book as one of the major German figures in Paris. Um, He was drafting a constitution in the mid 1930s for a future fourth Reich which he imagined would one day displace the current Third Reich of Hitler uh, and bring about a new democratic liberal order. Um, so if you know, you're know you an anti-Nazi activist and you're trying to uh, come up with a galvanizing slogan that will uh, mobilize your followers to resist uh, the evil Third Reich of the Nazis, well then maybe a Fourth Reich implies a successor state, one that's obviously moved beyond and has improved upon uh, the horrible state that exists. Uh, and it sort of, takes, life of its, it takes on a life of its own from there. Uh, it's hardly only the leftists or liberals to use the idea of a Fourth Reich. Um, there are Jew- German-Jewish emigres in, uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, Morningside Heights, who sort of cavalierly refer to their new uh, neighborhood in the United States as the Fourth Reich. There are sort of right-wing conservative monarchists who envision a post-Nazi world as a Fourth Reich. There are even renegade Nazis like Otto Strasser and his Black Front who were interested in the concept of a Fourth Reich as a sort of more humane Nazi alternative to the evil Marxism of Hitler. So it is a grab bag umbrella concept a lot of people make use of. But of course, as with, I guess, the history of semiotics in general, it depends on, you know, who's going to have the power to impose their meaning on the term and what meaning is going to end up uh, prevailing in the minds of ordinary people. And that is something, of course, that has changed a lot over time.
0: Uh, was there any um, sort of higher level discussions of of this term in the thirties, or was this mostly like say in the U.S. government, or did did anybody else talk about this, or was this just something that pockets of people that were involved?
2: So what I've noticed uh, and what I chronicle in the beginning of the book is that the concept of a forestry was initially only a German concept. Uh, It was used by Germans um, who were initially exiled from Germany, opponents of the Nazis, Later on, the German resistance actually embraced the concept of a Fourth Reich in trying to galvanize opposition to the regime, especially as World War II dragged on. And then gradually, by, I'd say, 1944-45, um, many um, leading figures in the anti-Nazi movement in the United States, here mostly I'm talking about German exiles and uh, intellectuals and journalists who were involved in organizations such as the Society for the Prevention of World War III, they started to use the concept of a Fourth Reich to... Um, insist uh, towards American pol- policymakers, makers, FDR, Morgenthau, and others, that Germany really did have to be punished severely after the war. Otherwise, a Fourth Reich might come into being. Uh, and therefore, that was sort of used as a way to justify a punitive uh, you know, peace treaty for the Germans. Uh, so yeah, you're going to see it cropping up in all kinds of uh, different communities, some German, some American, some highly uh, positioned in the realm of policy, others journalists and popularizers in the realm of intellectual life.
0: Uh, so yeah, let, let's jump ahead a little bit to after the war. Um, how is the term used by Germans in the early Federal Republic?
2: So during the occupation period, which is what the book's first major chapter mm-hmm. is about, from 1945 to 49, I would say that the concept of a fourth Reich is very much open, uh, open for um, negotiation. There are some people who want to rehabilitate the concept uh, to use it as a sort of progressive signifier for the new. Uh, democratic Germany that's sure to be, uh, created. Uh, there are actually arguments among German politicians in 1948, 49, whether the new state before it even has exists, before it's even created, uh, in the spring of 1949 with allied permission, whether it should be called a Republic or whether it should be called a Reich. And there are some people on a more conservative wing of the spectrum who say, you know, we want to harken back to the, you know, good traditions of the Reich in the second empire when it was legitimate. Um, you know, neutral concept, one that, you know, brought about a lot of positive feelings among Germans. Others say, no, the the international world, the international community will never accept uh, a future Germany uh, and take it seriously if the term Reich is anywhere near it. So we have to, uh, you know, forswear that concept, abandon it, and choose the concept of a republic instead. So there was already a lot of um, political bickering about the suitability of the term. Um, But Before long, what we end up seeing, interestingly enough, uh, is that a lot of um, American and British journalists, uh, and to a lesser degree political figures, actually start using the term as an admonitory uh, warning term um, to prevent neo-Nazis, or I guess at this point in time you'd really just call them unrepentant ex-Nazis, or even not ex-Nazis, people who still believe in Hitler's vision. Um, There are efforts, and we can talk about them perhaps a little bit. Um, immediately after the war, um, 1945-46, there are efforts uh, by um, unrepentant Nazis to try and resist and overthrow Allied occupation. Um, And when these um, rebellions or insurgencies uh, or even attempted coups end up transpiring and after they get crushed by Allied forces, uh, in the Western media, they're oftentimes uh, described as efforts to establish a fourth Reich. So before long, even though the term had some sort of hopeful progressive connotations, it becomes quickly associated with the desire of the Nazis to come back to power and thus it becomes like mm-hmm. a, a scare term.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, can you give um, us one maybe anecdote of, a, of an attempt, an attempted coup?
2: Sure, so in, in this section of the book, I talk about a variety of um, different efforts by ex-Nazis to return to power. Uh, one was the notorious werewolf movement that already got off the ground um, as the war was grinding to a halt uh, in the spring of 1945. The SS, uh, under Himmler, had already entrusted um, certain uh, leaders within the SS to try and arm uh, insurgents, people who would fight against Allied soldiers behind the lines uh, as the war was winding down. And the hope was, I guess to put it in present-day terms, that uh, the Germans could accomplish what uh, Iraqi insurgents accomplished in the years after Saddam Hussein was toppled from power. We all know, of course, that IEDs and attacks on Allied forces dragged on for years, uh, whether on the part of uh, you know Sunni groups or some Shiite groups as well. And um, essentially the Germans uh, wanted to make life so miserable for the allies after the conclusion of hostilities that they would simply up and leave before too long. Now, fortunately, um, the werewolf uh, threat was exaggerated, uh, but it was very much feared at the time um, by uh, allied policymakers. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, for example, was convinced that there were 200,000 Nazis ready to launch a resistance movement in the Alps uh, in south-southern Bavaria. That never came to uh, came to be. And of course, at the end of the day, it was probably only five to 6,000, uh, mostly young German men, called from the Hitler Youth, uh, who were entrusted with sabotaging Allied uh, infrastructure after the war, with launching attacks against German civilians who were branded as collaborators. Um, But some of the scholars who have studied the werewolf movement in depth have noted uh, that, you know, several thousand people may have lost their lives at the end of the war in the early post-war period. And so that's one possible um, resistance movement that I counterfactually reflect on, maybe potentially having been more serious if it hadn't been nipped in the bud. And then there are some famous um, efforts by Hitler Youth uh, commanders like Arthur Oxman to uh, try and infiltrate the post-war establishment and allied forces. There's uh, another one by a group called the Deutsche Revolution um, to infiltrate um, allied forces as well. And both of those uh, coup attempts um, were really never that uh, likely to succeed. And they ended up getting quashed into sort of little known operations, one called Operation Nursery in 1946 and one called Operation Selection Board in 1947. Uh, but I sort of try and recover those lost episodes of, uh, you know, Nazi activity in the immediate aftermath of World War II to, um, remind readers that uh, while we may today see German democratization as just a very smooth process that never had any bumps in the road, um, that is something we only realize now with the benefit of hindsight. But at the time, um, and you see this in the media coverage of these coup attempts, uh, there were serious, serious concerns that the Nazis might return to power, that they might establish a fourth Reich. And so in reconstructing these instances, I try and restore some drama and contingency and unpredictability to this period of history, which while we know today how it turned out, at the time, no one really knew what the answers were going to be and what the uh, uh, outcome was going to look like.
0: Yeah, I imagine there was substantial media coverage of these these attempts, right? I mean, I know it's something, Mm -hmm. as you've alluded to, that we've sort of forgotten or glossed over, and then maybe the average person doesn't realize even occurred after the end of the war and the beginning of occupation. But this was a a real serious issue. And so you must have, was it was it born out really in newspapers? Is that what you were looking at when you were...
2: Sure. I mean, one of the best things I ever did a couple years ago was get a subscription to newspapers.com. It's not yeah. like, as an academic, I don't have good databases uh, and access to them. But interestingly enough, um, the kind of newspapers that newspapers.com, and I'm, I have no stock in the company, so there's no conflict <laughs> in it But, uh, you know, the kinds of newspapers that are archived there are really, uh, I would just call them small-town papers, in Arkansas, West Texas, New Hampshire, wherever they are, and while a lot of the articles are, um, you know, recycled AP posts and other wire articles, you have a lot of um, local columnists, you know, in an era when that still existed, um, weighing in on these threats. And you see how widely dispersed the concept of a fourth right really was—not just in the media centers of Los Angeles and New York City, but all over the country. And it was my uh, belief that a lot of people were probably exposed to the concept of a fourth right very early on after World War II. And um, truth be told, I think that that fear, while it may not have been at the forefront of people's consciousness uh, for much of the post-war period, it was, you know, in the background, Mm. somewhere, always ready to be activated anytime some news item, uh, you know, redirected people's attention to present day German affairs, or as we'll see later on, uh, you know, the idea of Nazism rearing its ugly head in the United States again uh, or in South America or in the Middle East or wherever. Um, the concept of a fourth Reich is kind of this totemic concept that people keep coming back to time and time again.
0: Yeah. And a tip for all the historians out there, that is a potential place to get a good source on lots of topics. I'm sure newspapers. Oh,
2: yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get your, get your department to pay for it. It's like a hundred <laughs> bucks and change a year or something. But.
0: Um, okay. So let's, let's move a little bit beyond, uh, occupation and, and sort of talk about the 50s after the Germans have regained independence. Um, mm-hmm. I mean you do talk about how this, this concept is sort of again repackaged um, and uh, tell us about that and, uh, and how it's used and who uses it. And then sure, so, so
2: I mean this fear I should say the fear of a Nazi return to power has very frequently been described with the concept of a fourth Reich. but my book is the first to actually document that extensively um, there was another concept that was oftentimes used in the late 40s and early 50s, and that was the idea of re Nazification. Um, anyone who's in German studies knows, of course, that um, in all four of the Allied occupation zones after 1945, there were denazification policies pursued uh, to try and get ex Nazis out of positions of power and influence uh, in the you know, occupied zones and later in the Federal Republic, the new independent state. Uh, not to mention East Germany as well. Um, but renazification really did dominate the headlines in the late 40s and early 50s, largely because from the perspective of Western journalists, this was the moment when West Germany was gaining its, uh, getting its independence. And for the future chancellor, uh, and when he was elected, uh, Konrad Ka- uh, Adenauer, the eventual chancellor, there was a lot of mistrust on the part of Western observers because it was recognized right from the beginning that ex-Nazis were finding positions in the German educational system, in the judiciary, uh, in economic life and so forth. And it wasn't yet necessarily um, believed that these ex-Nazis would behave like good Democrats. It might have been uh, the fear, and in fact it was the fear on the part of lots of uh, analysts, that some of these Nazis might remain loyal to their old principles, that they might engage in backsliding, and that they might actually undermine Konrad Adenauer's fledgling democracy. So what I talk about in, in the second chapter is how the fear of renazification um, sort of peaked in the early 1950s, at a time when Adenau's government was super insecure still, at a time when the German unemployment rate in 1950 was still about 13, 14 percent, at a time when the economic boom, the so-called Wirtschaftswunder, hadn't yet kicked in. Uh, and at this particular time, there was a brand new uh, political party, an unabashedly um, Nazi party, a revivalist successor party called the Socialist Reich Party, the SRP, led by Otto Ernst Bremer uh, and several other uh, former Nazi party members, Uh, And then um, two years later, after the party was banned, after putting a big scare into Western observers by getting over 10% of the vote in regional elections in Central Germany, there was another massive conspiracy that was uncovered known as the uh, Naumann Conspiracy or the Gauleiter Conspiracy, where uh, Werner Naumann, who was Joseph Goebbels' deputy in the Reich propaganda ministry in the Third Reich, he um, sort of forged uh, an agreement with a bunch of ex-Gauleiter officials um, to infiltrate the FDP. Uh, the Free Democrats uh, and try and take over the party to the point where they could try and get themselves into the Bundestag uh, and start to uh, lay the groundwork for, again, what was feared to be a fourth right. Um, fortunately, um, because the German Supreme Court banned the SRP as, after a lot of Allied pressure from the U.S. and Great Britain, and after the U.S. and Great Britain's suppression of the Gauleiter conspiracy, um, Konrad Adenauer was able to breathe easy uh, by 1953, once the German economy is becoming more stable, he was able to kind of get out of this period of tenuous um, delicacy. And those, uh, you know, early 1950s efforts to uh, bring Nazi ideas back into the mainstream—they all failed. But once again, most people don't know uh, what a close call it was. Uh, and in my chapter, I, you know, try and drive that point home by looking at some counterfactual scenarios where, um, you know, if things had been slightly different these right-wing coup attempts could have actually been much more dangerous, much more threatening, and could have destabilized the young democracy. Um, So, you know, that adds some drama to the story and and reacquaints us with the idea that none of this was inevitable or preordained, that that Germany would become such a successful, prosperous democracy.
1: slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Um, Let's jump
0: ahead a little bit to the next chapter. This is sort of in the 60s where the concept goes global. Um, And uh, I'd really like to talk about as to how that happens, why that happens, and and like a couple of examples, particularly Greece, South Africa, um, Mm -hmm. I think are the two best ones that people will be familiar with.
2: Right. So, I mean, what basically launches this uh, new phase is the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, there's a notorious swastika wave, as it was called at the time in, around Christmas time in 1959, where, and it's still debated today, some neo Nazis, maybe with or maybe without East German communist support uh, in, in the city of Cologne, um, attacked uh, and vandalized the recently restored synagogue in the city of Cologne with swastikas and the phrase, you know, Jews out, raus." Um, and that was bad enough in and of itself, uh, and especially when the perpetrators were caught and turned out to be two neo-Nazis, it led to a lot of soul-searching in West Germany, and Konrad Adenauer had to really be on his toes to reassure people, not only Jews, but uh, you know, people in Europe who had uh, suffered under Nazi occupation that the Germans uh, didn't have a, na- a neo-Nazism problem. Uh, but worse still is that initial uh, swastika vandalism attack sparked a whole wave of copycat attacks initially in Germany, but then they spread to the United States, so much so that Dwight D. Eisenhower had to come out uh, in early 1960 and reassert uh, America's support for religious tolerance. Um, there were actually several uh, shootings um, that were perpetrated by assailants uh, against congregants at synagogues, um, a couple of bombing attempts, one in Kansas City um, that had uh, that brought about serious uh, damage to um, one of the main synagogues in that city and some in uh, Alabama, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Uh, and what it sort of made clear uh, is that starting in the early 1960s, there was an audience for Nazi principles, Nazi concepts that uh, went beyond Germany, and it made a lot of people, especially in the United States, uncomfortable, uh, because it um, took place at a time when the Civil Rights Movement was just getting started, and where a lot of opponents of the Civil Rights Movement, especially in the South, began to express their hostility uh, towards uh, you know, equal rights for African Americans by embracing Nazi ideas. This is, of course, where we get, to, this is the same time we get the founding of the American Nazi Party by George Lincoln Rockwell, uh, and a lot of, um, especially younger Americans who see uh, the swastika as a symbol of, you know, nonconformity, a symbol of, uh, you know, a rebellion. Um, they start to, for example, at various high schools, form clubs uh, and gangs with the name the Fourth Reich, uh, and they start to, you know, pass out membership cards with, I hear, by you know, commit myself to the creation of a Fourth Reich. And, you know, these also, these cases um, were all over the mass media. Um, And what it ends up actually uh, sparking, interestingly enough, is um, an increasing watchfulness, uh, an increasing sense of vigilance on the part of anti-Nazis in the United States, among left liberal circles, uh, within left liberal circles especially. Uh, And interestingly enough, maybe predictably enough, among the earliest adopters of this concept of a Fourth Reich as as something to be afraid of are, African-American civil rights activists, um, some of whom by the late 1960s are becoming black nationalists like H. Rap Brown, uh, James Baldwin, the famous writer and so forth. Uh, and among those people who are constantly warning about a fourth right, um, it's a lot of black activists, but a lot of members of the new left, uh, college students who were opposed to the Vietnam War, who were, opposed, who were opposed by the early 70s to Richard Nixon's corruption, especially after Watergate, um, you'll see that American activists start applying the concept of a forthright to American trends, underscoring the possibility, maybe even the reality of fascism coming into being domestically in this country. And what I, you know, the concept I, I use to sort of describe that process is the concept of universalization. So, so that if initially in the first 15 or 20 years after World War II, the concept of a forthright was strictly speaking applied to Germany, now it becomes more broader. Uh, as a term of usage so that, to come back to your point uh, that you mentioned a couple minutes ago, there are opponents of the Greek uh, military junta who refer to the, uh, you know, right-wing Greek government as a Uh, fourth-right, anti-apartheid activists like Jesse Jackson uh, in the 1980s will be uh, broadly using the term uh, fourth-right to refer to, um, you know, de Clark's government uh, in South Africa. Um, So you see a broadening and a widening of the concept, uh, and with that, of course, a lot more people becoming familiar with it and becoming curious as to what it even might mean, um, which gets us closer and closer to today's world, I think. Um,
0: so would you would you say that one of, maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons that this term sort of exploded, um, both for people embracing sort of Nazi ideas and those who are anti-fascist, um, in sort of response to the global upheaval, you know, the 1960s are a very difficult time everywhere across the world. You have Vietnam, you have civil rights, you have other disturbances. It, would, you, would, that, would, would you place the blame on, on the global upheaval as to why this term sort of exploded?
2: Sure. I'd say, I mean, if you track the rise and fall of the concept of a fourth right, it very much mirrors um, periods of stability and instability. So it wanes in use and relevance in times when there's a centrist consensus in the political culture of any particular country. But then when you see polarization kick in, when you see uh, the left and right moving further apart from each other, and when especially on the left, you see uh, growing fears of fascism, domestic fascism, potentially uh, being imaginable. And needless to say, that's been really current uh, in present day America ever since Trump's election and the rise of the alt-right uh, and the sort of uh, dog whistle um, signaling uh, that has been coming out of the administration or people close to the administration, um, those fears end up usually getting um, systematized and concentrated through or filtered through this um, you know, concept of a forthright because it's an all-encompassing slogan that, uh, uh, I guess, subsumes all kinds of different fears and principles and notions within it. Uh, and you know, as far as it goes, it doesn't say very much, but it e- easily and immediately gets people's attention. And then once people start figuring out what do you mean by the concept, well then it served its purpose. But I think especially in a world of, you know, uh, decreasing attention spans, um, you know, it's an easy way to get headlines to draw attention to yourself, um, and that's equally true. Obviously, of the concept of a Nazi, and if you call anyone Nazi or if you call anyone a fascist, you're basically doing the same thing rhetorically. But the idea of a fourth right goes further because it actually implies there's a sustained, ongoing agenda to torpedo the democratic system and bring about a new uh, authoritarian regime on Nazi principles. So, uh, yeah, I would certainly say that in terms of American discourse and even global discourse, the terms Nazi, fascist, Hitler, and fourth Reich are all constantly in circulation. Uh, But the fourth Reich has its own, I guess, functional division of labor in that larger dialogue. Mm. Um,
0: So with the end of the sixties, you, you enter into a very different period in the seventies where it sort of becomes, more prevalent in popular culture um, mm-hmm. as sort of as the world settles down and it becomes less likely that there would be a fourth, Reich. Let, let's talk about, because I, I found this chapter particularly interesting. I, I didn't know a whole lot about this on um, mm-hmm. the sort of explosion of its use in the seventies. Of course, I know the, some of the modern stuff, but um, you know, they writers, movies sort of picked this up really early in the seventies. So,
2: Right. So what's interesting is that uh, as I described in the book, what you see happening to the fourth Reich from the late 60s into the 70s and 80s is a shift away from universalization to what I call aestheticization. Um, the universalization of Nazism, as we were just describing, was a reflection of the turmoil of the 60s and early 70s. But the fact of the matter is, is that all sort of um, falls by the wayside. So this shift from, uh, that I described between, um, or the shift from universalization to aestheticization reflects the growing sense of uh, calm uh, that begins in the 1970s. Keep in mind that um, when Nixon goes to China and when the Cold War tensions between the US and the Soviet Union start relaxing and during the period of detente, um, that the communists are not a ready-made uh, enemy anymore. Um, you know, to, they're not a ready-made uh, villain to fight against in comic books and in uh, films and novels and so forth. And what some scholars have argued, and I, I share this argument, is that the Nazis become a you know, ready-made and ready available, um, readily available villain of choice uh, in the 1970s even though at this point in time, um, fears of a real Nazi return to power are declining, largely because, keep in mind, after 1969, West Germany's government is in the hands of a socialist administration led by Willy Brandt. No one in their right mind really thinks that under his administration, the Nazis are going to come back to power. So the Nazis sort of become uh, commercialized. They become used um, for aesthetic purposes to serve as, you know, convenient villains and films, comic books, TV shows, and so forth. And what I sort of chronicle in this fifth chapter is how starting in the 1950s and throughout the 70s and 80s, um, there's an equivalent phenomenon to what at the time is called the Hitler wave. Uh, in the early 70s, there's an enormous outpouring of scholarly and journalistic interest in Hitler's personal life, his loves, his dogs, you know, the activities of a chauffeur, whatever it might be. Uh, you have a lot of biographies appearing of Hitler at the time. Um, and this fascination with Hitler obviously uh, gets mirrored In films like *The Boys from Brazil*, uh, *The Odessa File*, uh, countless—I think in the in the chapter I cover more than uh, fifty—you know—pulpy airport novels that um, basically are premised on the idea that the Nazis are still with us. They've smuggled themselves into America or into Brazil or into post-war West Germany, and they're still bent uh, on a bloodthirsty reign of terror and returning to power. And usually, it's uh, you know a matter of showing how different uh, different heroes, whether it's you know, CIA agents, or Mossad agents, or ex-Holocaust survivors—people who you know have uh, you know the heroism at their disposal to dispense with this Nazi threat—they end up, of course, succeeding. Uh, and there's a lot of um, you know there's a lot of interest in in this uh, in this genre. Uh, it plays itself out, I think, by the middle to by the early to middle 1980s, especially you know when Reagan and Brezhnev, uh, and then Reagan and Chernyanko and uh, and drop off end up reheating the Cold War after the Soviet re-invasion of, or after the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Um, but for a good 15, 20 years, um, this becomes a staple of Western popular culture. Um, and in the process, it even further spreads to a wide audience uh, the concept of a fourth right, uh, especially you know, when it's figured in comic books like Captain America or whether it's in you know any number of novels by Robert Ludlum. People you know are reading these things left and right. Uh, And I think the concept really solidifies um, on an even more mass basis uh, at this point in time.
0: Yeah. I think it's important to to highlight just how widespread this was. It wasn't just in sort of novels or it was, it was everywhere. It was television. It was movies. It was.
2: Yeah. uh, And keep in mind, one of the things that also triggered this was the fact that um, the Nazi hunters of that era, like Simon Wiesenthal, they were starting, and his book came out, The Murderers Are Among Us in 1967, but, um, he becomes, you know, a celebrity on the talk show circuit. He's talking about his ongoing attempt to try and find Josef Mengele. Um, there's, the, there's the rumor that Martin Bormann, Hitler's uh, chancellor's secretary, might still be alive. Uh, and then when his body is conveniently found uh, at a rubble site, construction site in Berlin, it sparks a whole bunch of novels about Bormann potentially still being alive. And when you fast forward to today, when you look at, uh, you know, Amazon Prime's show Hunters about Nazi hunters in the 1970s, uncovering a conspiracy of nazis either in nasa or in the american government to return to power and establish a fourth right which by the way is the most recent literal evocation of that concept um it's no surprise that uh amazon is setting this show in the 70s because that's really where this this myth uh you know took root in the realm of popular culture
0: yeah i definitely wanted to ask you and i was going to ask you a little later but i'll I'll ask it now about the sort of the wave New wave of this that we find ourselves in now, um, not just books like by Hitler's chauffeur and Hitler's secretary and all in those, but um, the, just the proliferation of television shows, uh, Man in the High Castle, Plot Against America. Um, yep. uh, why do you think that this is something that we have now become re interested in?
2: Sure. Well, I mean, one interesting thing to keep in mind about the present day uh, proliferation of counterfactual uh, series, alternate history series, is that many of them are actually based on older work. So for example, Man in the High Cast was published in 1962. Um, The Plot Against America was published in 2004. And Watchmen, the comic book, was published, if I'm not mistaken, in 1986. Uh, So those are older texts, but they've been um, repositioned to suit the mood of this Mm -hmm. present-day world. And especially because we're in a world of, um, you know, golden age, as it's been described, of of streaming television online, uh, with Hulu and Amazon and Netflix and so forth, there's been an enormous appetite for really solid content, um, and to, you know, dramatize in six, eight, ten part series um, that you can easily binge watch um, these kinds of um, really appealing scenarios that in an earlier generation would have just been too expensive to produce on network television or cable. Um, and I think it really obviously, and this is hardly an original point, but it totally suits the present day political moment. The fear among liberals, especially in the United States, that our own country may be going down a path towards fascism. Um, However hyperbolic or uh, overheated that might be, it definitely hits a nerve, Um, and it's certainly part of the larger dynamic, as I've discussed in some of my other articles lately, uh, of people when they're out of power in American political culture, always fearing that the man in charge as president is in the process of ushering in a new Nazi era. Obviously, the Tea Party, you know, conservative Republicans viewed Barack Obama as Hitler, Liberals view George W. Bush as Hitler. Uh, you still see people discussing a Fourth Reich in these contexts as well. But under Trump, um, you know, depends on your political viewpoint, needless to say. But there's certainly more evidence that if anybody were to be accused of, you know, uh, pushing the envelope in that direction, it uh, would be him. Which is why I think HBO's plot against America is really um, resonating with a lot of viewers now. Because it's something that when Roth, Roth first published it in 2004 was seen as a loose allegory to George Bush, but it wasn't seen as anything, you know, that disturbing today, it's very different.
0: Um, Do you see uh, danger in in the way that these things, these terms are casually used in film and...
2: Well, what I've done is, um, I I recently published uh, an article in Central European History um, about whether, about the whole debate about whether Trump and Hitler comparisons are are suitable. Uh, And I look, I sort of look at the two sides of the debate, Um, you know, left liberals who argue that Trump is Hitler, um, more conservatively minded critics who think that the a comparison is uh, hyperbolic and would be, you know, better served by looking at looking for historical analogies for Trump in other parts of American history, whether it's George Wallace or you know the McCarthyite period or uh, you know the no nothings of the nineteenth century. Um, but the fact of the matter is, is that any time ever since nineteen forty five that there has been uh, a group of people that want to ring the alarm bells about a threatening political development, they'll always play the Hitler card because he's the one who gets the most attention. That obviously invokes the famous idea of Godwin's law, uh, which has been circulating on the web since the 1990s. The idea that, you know, uh, in an online debate, uh, the longer it drags on, the more likely it is that someone will invoke Hitler uh, and that's being played out nonstop. Um, And I don't feel like there's any way we can really say whether it's good or bad. It's, it's sort of inevitable. Um, and all comparisons, by definition, have to stress similarities as well as differences. So when I, for example, tell my students in my present-day Nazi Germany class, who are all writing, incidentally, about the ongoing media comparisons between Trump and Hitler and whether those comparisons are on target or off base, uh, you know, I say be, in, be aware of the fact that there are going to be good comparisons, and there are going to be less good comparisons. Uh, and one mark of uh, a good one is that similarities and differences are being brought into the discussion from the outset.
0: I uh, didn't mean to go too far off on the tangent. I do want to talk about the the last chapter of your book, too, um, where after the Cold War, sort of the term becomes re-Germanized. Mm-hmm. Um, and will one first explain to us what that is um, and how is it sort of manifests itself all the way up to today in Germany?
2: Sure. So, um you know, had it not been for German reunification following the end of the Cold War in 1989-90, it's all likelihood the case that the forthright just would have disappeared uh, into Western popular culture and remained, um, you know, a kind of cliche that you would associate with potboiler novels and, and schlocky films. Uh, but because uh, the end of the Cold War uh, transpired in 1989-90, because of German reunification in October of 1990, uh, countless media observers all across the world, uh, but especially in Britain, and the United States, to a lesser extent in France and Israel, uh, all of them started to raise the prospect that a unified Germany might be just a, a sort of a way station to a future forthright. And while that initially uh, was an example of people using the concept to raise questions or fears about Helmut Kohl, um, that hasn't necessarily stopped uh, in the years that followed. Uh, obviously, when there was a whole upsurge of neo-Nazi violence against immigrants in the early 1990s, um, that tracked with a lot of media coverage, raising fears of a possible forthright, especially among British uh, you know, journalists who were always interested in reminding people that the, the Germans had never really reformed themselves and were always sort of closet Nazis. Those are some of the people who today uh, are in favor of Brexit and have you know, always claimed that Britain needs to assert itself nationalistically against the German-run European Union. Uh, and of course after the 2008 financial crash, um, when German austerity, policies uh, were foisted on much of the rest of Europe, especially the, you know, the gypsy nations of Greece and Italy and Portugal, Spain, and so forth, that led a lot of uh, critics of um, German austerity to start lambasting Merkel's government as yet another Fourth Reich. And what I argue in the book is that um, some of those usages of the concept were really tendentious and flippant. Um, They were mostly meant just rhetorically to express hostility and uh, anger towards Germany. But that being said, there still were people within West Germany, uh, died in the wool committed Nazis, who wanted uh, to assertively revive the concept of a Fourth Reich and make use of it as an aspirational term. Uh, and here I talk about people like uh, Michael Kunen, or Manfred Roder or some of the intellectuals like Horst Mahler uh, and political activists associated with a German group called the Deutsches Kolleg, uh, who were a bunch of nationalists in the 1990s wanting to Um, not really accept uh, a unified Germany on a democratic foundation, but wanted to um, create a vision for German nationalists and right-wingers of one day um, demolishing the Federal Republic of Germany and replacing it with, yes, you guessed it, a Fourth Reich. Uh, And today there's still a movement in Germany called the Reichsbürgerbewegung, the Reich Citizens Movement, that has flirted with the concept of a Fourth Reich. Uh, And Pegida uh, and the AFD, uh, while they've been more distant from the concept, What I sort of end this chapter with is um, the idea that if the concept of a Reich has existed in German intellectual and cultural life for a thousand years, and if the concept of a third and a fourth Reich have been, you know, flirted with uh, off and on for many, many decades, there's no reason to suspect, um, because of the way the term has oscillated and had peaks and valleys over the years, that it might not potentially in the future become uh, a term that might galvanize nationalists uh, who are trying to create for themselves an organizing concept. Uh, the longer we, of course, move away from the history of Nazi Germany, the more that the stigmas against the term "the Reich are going to fall away. And I, you know, wouldn't see it as impossible for a new generation down the line uh, to try and, you know, term for political purposes. Um, thankfully, Germany, uh, as in its current incarnation, is very far removed from that. But uh, you know, as I end the book, um, I point out that you know it's not just in Trump's America or in Putin's Russia, or in any other part of the world where the term Fourth Reich is being used um, rhetorically. It's even by advocates who believe in the concept in Germany uh, that, you know, we still have to be on guard about. Um, and that's kind of the, uh, the way I kind of leave the, the, the narrative.
1: Um,
0: as a way to sort of wrap up discussion of your book, I'm wondering if you could tell us one or two things you would like people who read the book or who are listening to the podcast today to take away from it and really sort of have it stick with them?
2: I mean, I guess without sounding too semiotic, I think one important thing I learned from the book is that, you know, there are signifiers in the world. There are words that are buzzwords, but it's really hard to be able to anticipate what those buzzwords really mean. In other words, without sounding like too much of a post-structuralist, you know, you have your signifiers, the words themselves, and then you have the meanings of those words, the signifieds. and what one group might understand the Fourth Reich to mean might be entirely different from what another group might take it to mean. And so when we talk about the possibility of a Fourth Reich, some will see that as a nightmare. Liberal Democrats, of course, would be among the people who would view it as such, but then there are constantly uh, surprising numbers of people who would view the concept of a Fourth Reich as a fantasy. So, you know, I didn't end up titling the book uh, Between Fantasy and Nightmare, the idea of the Fourth Reich and Western life, you know, since since the 1930s, but that was one thing that I was sort of wondering about at a certain point in time. I mean, it's fascinating to argue that one concept could be a nightmare to some and a fantasy for others. And the more um, that you become interested or the more that anyone becomes interested in, in any concept, sometimes you have to really just historicize it, trace its origins and its roots back to its beginnings and see how the use of the term shifts chip, over time which is basically just to, to highlight, I think what a lot of us recognize uh as the sociological foundations of language and knowledge uh, so that we really want to understand, uh, you know, things, concepts at their core. Um, there's no essentialist meaning there whatsoever. It's always variable.
0: Well, great. Um, well, I want to thank you again for coming on the show to talk to, about your book, um, but before we let you go, I always like to finish with one final question and um, ask you, what are you working on now?
2: Sure, so two projects I'll, I'll, I'll uh, highlight. One is an edited volume that I'm co-editing with a colleague of mine, Janet Ward, who's uh, the incoming uh, vice president slash president of the German Studies Association. Uh, it's called uh, Fascism in America, Past and Present. And it's uh, a collection of 12 essays by different scholars who are all working on uh, the history of fascist uh, thinking in, in America, whether in the 30s, 40s, or 50s or in the present day world, and that's uh, an exciting project because of, you know, uh, the political backdrop that we're currently living in. Um, but my own uh, solo uh, written project that I'm really excited about is, is a whole uh, global history of counterfactual history, which is to say, I'm writing the history of what-if thinking in Western cultural and intellectual life, going all the way back to the ancient, dare I say, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians and Sumerians, Uh, through the Greeks and Romans, through Herodotus and Thucydides and the Hebrew Bible and early Christian uh, patristic writers, through the Middle Ages and Machiavelli and the Renaissance and up through the Enlightenment, early modern period. I just finished a chapter on what ifs as they were used during the time of the American and French revolutions, trying to bring it all the way up to the present day. And why would anyone spend all their time doing this? Uh, To sort of um, once and for all topple the biased notion among many historians that real historians don't ask what if. In fact, when you look at the historical record over the last 3,000 years, you find that every single major thinker in the Western tradition has in fact used counterfactual reasoning to make any number of arguments on any number of kinds of topics. And what I'm trying to do is aggregate all the moments in time when you see uh, proliferations of counterfactual musings and reflections, whether it's at the time of the Persian Wars or the Peloponnesian War, whether it's at the time of the Crusades or the time of the Renaissance or the Thirty Years War. I mean, you'll just see um, clusters of uh, thinkers and major figures, could be Martin Luther, could be, you know, Maximilian Robespierre. They're all thinking and arguing in counterfactual fashion, but thus far there hasn't been anyone who's actually documented all this. Uh, And what I'm trying to do is bring it all the way up to the present in a book that probably will end up being quite long, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping I'm around 60% done now and we'll see how it goes, but I'm really excited about that project.
0: Well, it sounds interesting um, and no pressure, but once it's done and it's a book, um, I'd love to have you back and talk about it um, because I think it'd be a lot of interest in that. Um, Well, I want to thank Dr. Rosenfeld again for agreeing to be on the show. Um, It's an excellent book. I cannot recommend it enough. I think you should all go out and get it and read it while we're all at home. (laughs) Um, um, And again, the title of the book is The Fourth Reich, The Specter of Nazism from World War II to the Present. And I want to thank everybody for listening and we will see you all next time. Thanks again.